you know, uh, the military is housing some 2,000 people whose neighborhoods are affected by fuel-tainted tap water, and they're housing them in uh, Oahu hotels. This morning, we have Mufi Hanneman, head of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association, live on the line. Good morning. Good morning. You know, I'm so glad you could make time for us. You know, uh, uh, tell us, how did the word get out once the military decided they were going to, uh, you know, provide these dis- displaced families, uh, you know, hotel rooms? Well, we obviously were tracking the news, and and certainly, uh, uh, it, you know, it didn't take much for us to realize that we may be called upon. So uh, many of our hotels had already been proactively uh, trying to get ready uh, because this is the festive season. This is when we count on a lot of uh, visitors coming that are, going to pay uh, a decent rate to stay at our hotels. And uh, that was reinforced by calls that we had directly from the military. Uh, I received some, and also we had uh, other government officials calling to see what we were prepared to do. Uh, So I'm very, very proud of the fact that uh, those that were approached and those that I called stepped up immediately, were willing to do uh, their fair share. Uh, And uh, latest reports are they're pretty good for the next two weeks. Thousand rooms have been set aside. We're going to accommodate about at least 2,000 people and their families. Uh, and if there's a need for an extension, we'll certainly uh, try to do our part uh, to ensure that we are providing a safe and clean haven uh, for our military families. So, uh, are they getting uh, the military rate? I guess uh, you know at these uh, uh, hotels. Yes, you know it's up to the individual hotels, but I know that uh, they are uh, putting forward a, a decent rate. Uh, and a discount, if you will, a military rate, what have you, uh, to ensure that uh, you know we can have as many families stay uh, at our hotels. Well, some of our uh, vacancy rates, you know, were up there because uh, of the Delta variant, and then some of the you know restrictions uh, with the international travel. Uh, so I know we weren't uh, probably expecting to see you know things pick up until like the first quarter, but this uh, helps a little bit. Yes, uh, well, you know, we were going to be seeing, uh, because we were successful in, in having the governor rescind uh, the message as of November 1, so bookings were starting to come in, and uh, we certainly are going to see that coming into December, uh, where uh, people are starting to book heavily uh, coming back to Hawaii. So it's going to build up, but obviously this helps uh, kickstart uh, the rebound that we so desperately need for all of uh, businesses uh, that need to put their people back to work. But this is a double, double-edged sword. You know, the headlines are not good uh, as far as fuel-tainted water, uh, even though it's not, you know, it's, it's not the, the whole island. It's, it's just military housing at this point. But, you know, are you concerned at all about the repercussions and whether, you know, the headlines might make people reconsider coming to Hawaii? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, this, we've worked very hard over the years uh, when I was in office, uh, now as a very strong advocate our number one industry, uh, that Hawaii is a, a safe place to come and visit. That was one of our mantras when we were able to lure uh, big gatherings like APEC here when I was mayor that, you know, because of the fact that we can almost guarantee uh, safety uh, to the extent possible, whether it's a man-made or natural disaster. So that's been our calling card. And now with COVID, we're trying to say we're also a healthy place to come. Uh, that we, uh, we do ask for some stringent requirements, but that's to ensure that uh, you're going to come here. If you're healthy coming here, you're going to be healthy going out. And also we want to maintain the health of our people. So uh, this puts us in a position whereby we are concerned that if we don't get a short-term solution and a long-term solution, uh, people may doubt it. But 
judging so far, it hasn't really impacted. I was at the Kala Resort this morning for breakfast, and visitors there that came here just kind of, you know, they, 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 uh, they're happy to be here, and, and they're having a great time. And so it didn't seem to, I didn't have any questions from anyone there, albeit it was just a breakfast meeting that I had there. They said, oh, what, what are you folks going to do about this water situation? They were happy to be in Hawaii. And, you know, uh, as mayor, uh, you worked uh, closely with the Board of Water Supply, uh, you know, and you, you know about the good work that they do there. You know, they're, they're looking out for our resource. Uh, what can you say at this point, you know, because there are some strong calls uh, to have the fuel uh, removed from those tanks, uh, you know, and you have experience, you know, uh, you know, working in the White House in D.C. So you also recognize the military uh, implications, you know, the strategic uh, relationship that we have uh, with the military. Well, first of all, you got to follow the experts. You got to follow the science. Uh, and certainly, when you put someone in charge like Ernie Lau at the Board of Water Supply, who uh, became chief engineer there after my time um, at City Hall, uh, you know, he had been warning. Uh, that this, in fact, uh, was something to seriously ponder and consider. And I know there were numerous attempts at both the city council level uh, and at the state legislative level uh, to get more attention, get more eyes on it from the military, but most importantly, come up with a, a response that would be uh, proactive. Uh, so that's, that's step number one. I have to wonder why, um, you know, previous leadership at City Hall didn't take that more seriously. And at that time, call attention uh, and gather a meeting like uh, we used to do when I was there with, with the congressional delegation, with the governor and huddle and, and come up with, with a solution because you're trying to seek a balance here. And that balance is, of course, being at the forefront of national security, our location out here, uh, and, you know, being part of our, our national defense strategy. But at the same time, what's really important is our basic right and responsibility to have pure, clean drinking water. So that is that balance. And right now the scales are tipped in the other direction. We need to bring that back to ensure that everybody understands how important it is. I, I know for a long time, and I know you too when you've traveled, you know, and, you, and I know when I first started drinking bottled water, I used to think, why are we drinking bottled water here on the mainland? I mean, Hawaii, you just drink tap water, you know, and so forth. And, of course, times have changed, but that's always been our reputation. We have the cleanest, purest drinking water in the world. So that's in jeopardy right now. And, you know, there's no compromise in terms of, you know, what do you, what value do you put on people's health uh, and their lives and so forth. And right now, we've got to, we got to make it, make sure that we're doing all we can uh, to have uh, access to pure drinking water, not only for military families, but that we don't put at risk uh, the residents that call Hawaii home. And how do you think uh, this crisis is going to affect our relationship with the military going forward? Well, once again, I, I think that you just have to have some honest, frank discussions. And, uh, you know, I don't think anyone in a responsible position in office is going to ask for the military to withdraw completely from Hawaii. But certainly what we'd like for them to do is very, very proactive about this, be part of the solution, and hear us, and most importantly uh, demonstrate that, uh, uh, that they're not only concerned about military strategy but also the health and welfare of their families that are stationed here and also the health and welfare of the people of Hawaii. So I think that needs to be done. There needs to be some frank, open discussions. And fortunately, the Secretary of Navy was here uh, because of December 7th and so forth and the christening of the ship, the USS uh, Daniel K. Inouye. Uh, hopefully he'll go back with that feeling that, uh, hey, this is an issue that we cannot 
uh, take too lightly. Maybe we've got to rethink our strategy. Maybe we've got to look really seriously at how we can relocate those tanks uh, because uh, it's creating a major problem uh, in the state of Hawaii. Well, do you support that idea that they have to be uh, removed, uh, you know, that we have to decommission that facility? Well, I think they have to look very seriously at that right now and not use the fact that it's going to cost millions and billions of dollars to do that. I think they've got to set that aside uh, and look at what's best, what's going to help protect the health and safety of our people and military families out of here. That has to be number one. And our military delegation, our military delegation, excuse me, our congressional delegation is calling for the governor to ask President Biden to declare an emergency. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. This is an emergency. You know, it's better to be proactive as opposed to to a point where it starts affecting the drinking water of our local residents in their neighborhoods. Now is the time to do it. Don't wait. Don't wait for that, that major catastrophe to occur because right now everybody's questioning why didn't those in office back then do something about this when they were alerted to it in 2014, 2012, 2017, what have you. Okay, that's in the past. Let's go forward. Okay. So now's the time to be proactive about it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, We really appreciate your time this morning. Always. Thank you, and uh, Merry Christmas. All right. Merry Christmas. We've been talking to former Honolulu Mayor Mufi Hanneman about the current water crisis and the need to house the displaced military families in local hotels. Hanneman currently is the head of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health Systems, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org. Well, the Navy finds contamination in a second Oahu well and identifies a pollutant in the Red Hill shaft that is the subject of today's reality check. Joining us now is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra. Good morning, Christina. Morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this is a developing story. Just within the hour, there's a new uh, news release that came out uh, by the Navy. Right. So to catch people up, yesterday, um, the Navy told state and local officials that they found contamination in a second well. Um, They had already shut down the Red Hill shaft, which they said yesterday had JP5 uh, jet fuel in it. Um, They added yesterday that there is the second well that they found um, total petroleum hydrocarbons, um, basically like a diesel substance in a second well, and that they had shut that down on December 3rd. Um, Now today, just really... Like uh, within the hour, as you said, um, they said, well, it wasn't really in the well. It was near the well. And we don't really think the contamination came um, from the well or is indicative of problems with the aquifer. We think it was related to the distribution system. So there's still a lot of questions about what this all means. We're trying to figure it out. Um, but it's it's a fast moving, ongoing story. Yeah. And, you know, I know when we were trying to verify the uh, uh, AO well uh, status. Uh, I think the Board of Water Supply spokeswoman said, you know, we didn't even realize that they had a well that they called the Halaba well, which is kind of the same name that they use for the Halaba shaft. And so it just right. c- kind of confusing for everybody. Definitely. Yeah. So to try to clear things up, um, when all of this contamination news started to break, um, the Board of Water Supply, the civilian water utility, shut down its halava shaft. That's the big one that supports um, 20% of the the water for, like, the region, like urban Honolulu all the way to Hawaii Kai. Um, And the Navy has something called the Red Hill Shaft. They shut down 
that right away. And so in the days since, um, both the Navy and Board of Water Supply have shut down additional wells. Um, the Board of Water Supply closed two additional ones just um, yesterday. And the Navy has closed, um, I think, one. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to keep my head on straight. Um, it's a lot to keep up with. Um, but basically, the, both agencies say they're still testing and waiting for results. And that, of course, has delays involved because they have to send the water samples to the mainland to get the level of spe- specificity they need. Um so, you know, we have a lot of questions. We're answering, uh, trying to get answers as quickly as we can, um, and we'll, we'll keep you updated as best we can. Yeah, and, you know, I know it, uh, you know, all this back and forth is no consolation, you know, for the families that are having to deal with all of this. You know, they're having yes. to, to be displaced, dislocated during the holidays, and, and it's rough for everybody. Absolutely. They are so frustrated, rightfully so. Um, they've feel like they're not getting any answers. A lot of them have reported that the Navy has been there to test their water, but they haven't heard the results. So they're just kind of left wondering. Um, and all meanwhile, you know, people are sick and have these um, illnesses or sores or rashes or what have you. And um, they want to know what exactly did we consume? Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what the plan is going forward. I know uh, the temporary uh, leave of uh, uh, that or the allowance that is provided for those military families, I think, is only good for like ten days. Uh, you know, so lots of unknowns uh, and uh, lots to deal with. I know they're, like I said, they're they're trying to deal with the families as well as trying to respond to this crisis and figure out, you know, uh, where the the contamination is exactly and to make sure it doesn't right. spread. Right. I mean, at this point, we just don't know um, how much longer this is going to go on. Um, we don't know what exactly the contamination is, where it precisely came from, um, and how the Navy plans to stop it. But we'll keep you updated best we can. Okay. Well, eat your Wheaties. <laughs> this is going to, I think, uh, last a long time. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedder with today's reality check. To read her full story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience In Human Terms, a refreshed installation featuring a new sound suit sculpture by artist Nick Cave. HonoluluMuseum.org. Jaleesia Spallinger and her family just spent their first night in a Waikiki hotel. We talked to her this morning about the high levels of a pool-cleaning chemical, a cyanuric acid, that she said was found in her tap water back in early November, before the complaints about the fuel fumes surfaced. She just moved to Hawaii this summer, and the last six months have been rough. The only thing I noticed was um, random smells of chlorine, strong smells of chlorine in our water. Okay, and so they came and did testing on your house, and then what was the report back? Um, the report showed that there was high levels of a spa and pool cleaner in our water, which is CYA, so cyanotic acid. And is that supposed to be in your water? Only if it's um, with free chlorine as a one-to-one ratio. If it's more CYA present, then it doesn't do a good job at disinfecting 
anything. At that point, you're just getting more of a cleaning agent in your water. And so what what did they tell you about that acid in your water? That it was normal. Okay. But they printed out some papers that shows the side effects that can happen and um, how much is supposed to be in your drinking water, but it still showed that there is definitely side effects that can happen from frequently ingesting the water with the high levels of it. And so what kind of levels were they seeing in your water? Yes, it was higher than 250 range. And that's acceptable? (laughs) No, that is actually, it showed on the um, med lab diagnosis, the water test strips, it shows like a negative, um, like a sad face for oh, not good. colors it was. So it showed for that level in there, there was a uh, sad face so with exclamation points next to it. Like those levels maybe were not acceptable. They were not acceptable at all. They were actually alerting to have that high of the CYA levels if it's supposed to be a one-to-one ratio. So, so we did have um, NASAC come out and he did test the water again and it showed that the chlorine levels matched up exactly to the levels that was on the testing done by the third-party inspectors, which made me question how much of CYA is present in our water supply. How many of your neighbors had their water tested? Everyone on our street on Upper Murray got inspections done on their home. They weren't notified unless there was a, a big alert on their water. If it was just some high levels of other um, toxins that in there, it didn't matter. It seemed like it was just like if there was a really big alert, then they were supposed to report it up to top management immediately and Navy officials. So they knew about it within the first week of November. You were getting your water tested weeks before the complaints about chemicals in the water started yes. surfacing in your neighborhood. Yes. So what were you thinking? I was thinking that they lied. Nothing that they said made sense because if the water supply was as great as they said it was, then people shouldn't be having issues in our neighborhood three weeks later if we're all in the same supply and the water's clean. And did you talk to your other neighbors about whether their tests passed? They were unable to get pictures of their tests because the third-party inspectors weren't allowed to give that out. But because they came into my home and said a lot of their comments out loud and like kind of instilled the fear in me, I was... I just asked, was it okay if if I got a screenshot of the test results? But without that, they were telling me that's not possible. I see. Okay. How would I have gotten these results? I'm like, I got them from the people that y'all let come to our home. So you're basically worried. I mean, you didn't trust what was coming out of your tap. No, I did not. And so you just moved into a hotel in Waikiki, uh, but I'm sure it's kind of upsetting because you're, you're, you know, you're not in your own home. Yes, because we decorated for Christmas and this is our first Christmas after my husband's been deployed. Um, when COVID happened, his deployment got extended. So he wasn't, and then he had to turn around and leave again for schooling in order to come move to Hawaii. So we spent a lot of time away and traveling. So this would be our first Christmas together as a family of four. So it's very upsetting to have to be in a hotel back and forth. We have family coming on Christmas Day, and we just all can't be comfortable in our own home enjoying the holidays. Everybody has to be uprooted. And I'm told that the temporary leave generally runs for like 10 days. It does. They don't have a plan after the 17th, which is not okay because Christmas is a week later, and we need to know what's the plan uh, ahead of that 
especially with our service members still being forced to go to work. We need a plan to know ahead of time, are we going to be still in the hotel? If not, I'd like to know so at least my husband can be off of work to help me tra- travel from the hotel back home with kids and all of our stuff. They're leaving everything on the military spouses and then making, the hu- making um, our spouses go to work worried. I'm told it's possible that that leave can be extended, but there's just so much uncertainty right now. Yes, and because they just came out with another um, article saying that they found contamination in the second um, water well, it just really just now people are trust is gone. They had the opportunity to admit it in town hall meetings that other places could be contaminated and they are still sticking to the same story. So people are pretty livid now that we're finding out there's actually more contaminations. And are your other neighbors in uh, in other hotels or did they opt to just stay in their homes? They're in hotels. Everyone's been posting on the neighborhood um, group to keep in touch with um where to go at for laundry, what to do with water, and then they're giving updates on how to handle TLA so that we can make sure that we're getting our money back and it's going to be covered because they take a long time to reimburse us. So we just feel like we, a lot of people feel like they might go into debt waiting on the Navy to come around and pay us because they do take a long time to pay people for things like this. And, you know, the holidays are normally a stressful time, but, you know, I understand that, you know, you work and you're going to school and you've got the kids. It's a lot to juggle at this point. Oh, it is. It was a lot. So I had to reach out to my therapist for medicine because it wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't sleeping or eating for the past month. I was sleeping three hours. I lost 19 pounds from not being able to eat or sleep. I think it's been pretty bad for the last month feel gaslighted by um, higher-ups. There's not much you can do when your husband answers to the same, very same people who gaslighted you, the very well, same people who sign off on your housing that you live at. So it's like you really don't know what to do. You're just kind of just waiting. So basically it's day-to-day? Yep, just a wait and see. And we feel like the Navy isn't doing town hall meetings so that they don't have to um, answer hard questions because they promised we'd be doing daily town hall meetings and nothing. It's just every few days. And I feel like a lot of times we're not really getting the answer out of all those meetings. It's still like, wait, wait, wait. But they had to beginning of November to come up with a plan and they didn't even have a plan in place for our family. When I asked about a hotel or getting rent reimbursed so we could cover to stay out in a hotel and nothing. They told me that's not possible. Well, I know uh, at one of those meetings they did apologize and said, yes, you know, there were some wrong numbers. Uh, some of the, the web forms weren't working properly, and they were trying to, you know, make those fixes, and they were asking for people's patience. But, uh, you know, I hear you. It, it's, very, it's a very stressful time. It is. I don't have much patience left. I don't know if any other spouses have much patience left because it's just a little rough right now. That was Jalicia Spallinger, a military wife from Radford Terrace, who we talked to this morning. She told us water sampling in early November showed that she had high levels of cyanuric acid, a type of pool cleaning chemical, in her tap water. Representative Ed Case told HPR this weekend that the military was investigating whether overchlorination may have been a problem in some of the homes. But again, this was weeks before the other complaints about fuel in the tap water began surfacing. We contacted the Navy earlier this week, but have yet to hear back.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from HomeWorks Construction, a full-service design-build general contractor with an in-house architectural staff specializing in custom homes and full-home remodels, homeworksconstruction.com. You are back with the conversation. And you know, if you are a fan of The New Yorker, chances are you may have seen the work of Maui-born cartoonist and illustrator R. Kikuo Johnson. His work regularly appears in books, ads, animation, and on the cover of The New Yorker. He's been traveling for book signings for his third graphic novel, No One Else. We revisit his interview with The Conversation's Lillian Song, who sat down with the Brooklyn-based artist just before his book hit the shelves in early November. Kikuo, this third graphic novel, you tell a very serious story, and you have that ability to just pull me right in with your clean lines of illustration, the simple color palette that just popped with complementary colors. The first few panels lead the reader straight into the stressed out life of single mom. Nurse Charlene, who's caregiving for her aging dad, taking care of young son Brandon. The narrative easy to follow and surprising pockets of humor that just amused me along the way. I just had to keep reading to just see how the drama unfolded as you know, you, you were popped into this family's not-so-perfect life. So tell me, what sparked you to tell this story? Yeah, wow, thank you so much for that close reading. Not that many people have read it yet, so it's nice to hear the feedback. What originally sparked the story, like, years ago, it was just a casual conversation I was having with a friend. And at the time, I was, I'm always working on different stories, always working on what might be a seed for a new graphic novel. And the kind of stories I really love, just human interest stories, a friend of mine was telling me about a friend of hers. Grandfather died, and the family didn't know what to do with the ashes. The ashes ended up underneath the sink with the cleaning products. And eventually, another family member found them, and the ashes got buried in the backyard. For all the seeds of stories I work on over the years, for whatever reason, that one really resonated, imagining what would drive a family into that scenario. And it seemed dark sad, also kind of funny. It had all the elements of art that I really love, which is some of my favorite movies and books are those movies and books that make you feel two opposite emotions at the same time. And from that little seed, I developed the rest of the narrative that's in no one else. But originally, it all was set on the East Coast where I was living, and it was never quite resonating. The characters never quite made sense, but it wasn't until I was home in Maui, was overlooking the sugarcane field, and imagined it set right there that suddenly these people became real to me. These became people I grew up with. These became people in my own family, just very familiar. And that was kind of the catalyst that really brought the book together and made me sit down and be like, okay, I got to draw this. By resetting the family into Maui, everything clicked. I was hooked by familiar island architecture, landmarks, (laughs) even bumper stickers. La Feline, so hearts out to Batman the cat. Oh, when you threw an auntie and the pigeon... (laughs) It's like, bam, my appreciation just went up a notch. I found myself really vested in this dysfunctional family. Even Charlene's brother, beer-bellied, wandering musician Robbie, who wasn't present in caregiving with dad. In his actions with his sister and his nephew, though, he grew on me. And I couldn't put the mouse down. I just had to keep clicking until the very last page. And then I found myself going back to the top and rereading because... I would discover details and panels that I missed, like this band cat or the sign to the Maui Humane Society. And then mm-hmm. upon further reading, seeing how much Brandon makes those smooching sounds calling to Batman. 
there's so much going on. How do you keep track? In terms of weaving all those threads together, it, it was a little tricky having three protagonists, in a sense. It was really important to have all three characters in this family have their own arc, their own path of discovery. And you're right, like each one is told slightly differently. And to your point, the young son, Brandon, and his relationship with his missing cat, Batman, is mostly told visually. That was something that I really wanted in this book from the start. It's, it's something I really love about comics in general. You know, one of my favorite cartoonists, his name is Chester Brown. He likes to say that comics is powerful because of its silence and its stillness. The power of comics to kind of distill a moment into a single, still, silent image is really powerful. And it's something I love. Comics that make you really look at the drawings and really kind of invest yourself in these really simple but narratively full drawings. And no one else really resonated with me on another level as a caregiver of aging parents. What sort mm. of research do you go through in the writing, in this illustrating process? Yeah. You know, that's a relationship that I don't think you see that often in pop culture, the kind of adult caregiving. It's not a particularly sexy topic, but it's something I thought a lot about just watching my four grandparents age. I lost them across 30 years. And I noticed with each death, my own family get reshuffled in big and small ways. And I think that's true for everyone. And thinking about uh, specifically uh, my grandparents who lived on Oahu that I would visit from Maui every winter. And, and as they aged, I would spend the entire summer with them and my mom and watching my mom kind of take care of my grandparents. I've heard other authors talk about how like, they might work on a project for years and it's only in the final year that they realize what that book is even about. And that was kind of true for me, too, with no one else. I think by the end of the process of working with these characters and living with this, I was realizing that I was trying to make sense of the end of life and all the, the difficulties that my mom kind of went through and also the difficulties that everyone goes through. But the book itself is completely not autobiographical, at least in the actual events that take place. You know, Charlene is also a caregiver of her young son, and these instances of both the child and the, the adult relying on one another, there's a lot of potential there for the humor as well. So I saw that as an opportunity to play with maybe dry humor and also tackle a really serious topic. Hmm. On a timeline, how long did no one else take from idea to publication? I think I wrote no one else probably in 2010. I wrote the, the basic script. And then in around 2015, I was sitting in Wailuku at my family's house watching a sugarcane burn. So that five years later, watching this huge cloud of smoke like rise over Maui and just thinking, this is so crazy. I can't believe we still burn sugarcane and I can't believe there's still a mushroom cloud hovering over Maui. I put those two things together and suddenly that story made sense, the story of that I had written five years earlier, combining it with the, with the sugarcane fire. And then the next year, 2016, that was when the last harvest was. And so maybe it was just in the zeitgeist, but having this feeling that that kind of sugarcane was going to end kind of became part of the story, even though it's not explicitly mentioned in the text. A couple of years later, I had a time, a place in my career where, you know, living in New York isn't cheap, but I finally found a chance where I was like, okay, I think I'm in a good place right now. My career is in a good place. I can take a couple years off and actually draw this thing. The actual drawing and, and working out of the book took about two years. And it's such a slow process, drawing comics. 
but it is the most creatively satisfying thing that, that I've ever done. It was two of my happiest years of my life. In your books, it seems like boats, fishing pop up. Is there a waterman in your life? Are you a waterman? Oh <laughs> uh, Well, you know, as a teenager, fishing was something, uh, just a way to get out of the house and spend the night on the beach <laughs> and really kind of get into trouble with my friends. In my first book, Night Fisher, that was kind of the general metaphor. But as I keep working, I keep finding myself called back to that theme. And I think just as a narrative theme of throwing a hook into the depths or the unseen or the unconscious, I think just keeps returning to my work. I read how you work through college and you also teach at the Rhode Island School of Design. You've been in the industry and have quite a body of work. You've garnered well-deserved recognition in your profession. What can you share with our younger listeners about pursuing art? Yeah, so, so I went to art school, which was a great experience, and spent three years during art school bussing tables on Maui at a Roots Chris Steakhouse in Wailea. And then when I moved to New York, I applied to be a busser at a Roots Chris Steakhouse in Times Square. And they hired me as a waiter, and I stayed there for eight more years cutting my teeth and trying to build up enough clients where I could, you know, still pay rent in Brooklyn, but also had enough freelance clients to do editorial illustration for. So that was a long process, but super rewarding. What I would tell students is that what really kind of got me in the door and what made anybody even think that I was hireable for magazines was the first thing I did was I published Night Fisher. It was a comic book, the graphic novel that I was working on in college. And art directors love hiring comic book artists because a comic book artist can tell a story. And, you know, a lot of painters or illustrators, they get really good at drawing one thing, but comic book artists have to draw everything. We have to draw chairs and the back of a phone, just random things that you'd never otherwise have to draw. So art directors love comic book artists. But beyond just comic art, kind of in that same story, I would tell students, if you have a passion and there's something you really, really want to do, there's something you want to do with your art in almost any creative field, it starts with just doing it, right? It started with me just making that comic. I didn't know if anybody would publish it. And there's a chance that it wouldn't have gotten published. But without that first step of just doing exactly what you want to do, the odds of you getting to do what you want to do are pretty low. So I would just encourage all the creative people just to, just to make it, just to do it. If you want to do book covers, make book covers for books you love, regardless if you're assigned to do that. If you want to make comic books, make comic books. If you want to make film make the short films with your iPhone, whatever you can do. And that's the first step. That's really, really the first step. And you'll always do your best work if you're doing exactly what you want to do. In the professional sphere, that's difficult, especially when I was first starting out. I'd get projects strictly to pay the rent and might not be particularly interesting. My first job was to draw diagram sex positions for Men's Health magazine, which maybe to some people is very interesting. <laughs> but as an illustrator at that time, it was kind of dry, and I did a terrible job at it. But as my career goes on, like you find ways to engage yourself in even the boring projects. And, and eventually the projects get more engaging. You get more and more hired for, for your specific talent. Well, I will have to say, you know, now that your career has blown up, another notch in your belt is having Senator Maisie Hirono tweet about one of your New Yorker covers. Uh, yeah, that was a real, really special moment. I couldn't believe that Maisie Hirono was retweeting my New Yorker cover I don't know if she had any idea that I'm from Hawaii. She probably doesn't even know that she actually was classmates with my parents at UH. 
I don't think she's aware of any of that. But she retweeted a cover that I did for The New Yorker that was addressing some of the anti-Asian American violence here in here on the mainland. That was, yeah, a tough moment and a tough call to get. But I was really grateful to have an opportunity and terrified to have the opportunity to kind of do a cover about that. And yeah, Maisie, Maisie retweeted it. Wow, a small world. Your parents went to school with her. Yeah, yeah, that, oh, wow. that was, yeah, they're same generation, yeah, mm-hmm, same class. Mm-hmm. Well, see, you have a great thing to talk about if you guys ever get set next to each other at a dinner party. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I look forward to that dinner. And we're, we're both on the East Coast half the year, so maybe You, you should just DM someday. her and say, hey, I'm from Hawaii, too. And, you know, yeah. that's so cool. So how do you feel about print versus web to access content? As an illustrator, it's interesting because they present two very different formal challenges. Everything printed on a magazine has a very limited color palette. It's basically the, all the colors you can mix with four inks, the cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, whereas the RGB palette on a computer screen is much more wide and allows for many more colors, which is not necessarily a good thing. Like more options is not necessarily better from a design perspective. So that's probably really technical, but that's actually the way I think about it. It's almost like two different mediums. It's like paint versus pastel. In terms of consumption and exposure, it's much easier to reach people digitally. Uh, It's much easier to give it away in a link than it is to sell it on a piece of paper, which is amazing and I think is great for exposure, especially for young artists. In terms of me reading and consuming the comics that I love, nothing beats print. That was Maui-born illustrator R. Kikuo Johnson talking with HPR's Lillian Song. His latest work, entitled No One Else, hit the bookstands early last month. Johnson will be in Honolulu tomorrow for a book signing at Boss Bookshop, and then he'll be at Maui's Comic-Con on December 11th and 12th. We'll have details and links on our website, Hawaii Public Radio, later today. And that is it for today's show. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.